It's an incredible privilege for me to welcome our guest preacher this morning, because if you've been around Peachtree for a long time, uh, Vic's been retired for about three and a half years now, and so if you're new to the church, you have no idea that this is one of my favorite preachers of all time, and that the dumbest thing he ever did was to call me as a young associate pastor in, in Houston, Texas, and what an incredible privilege it has been to stand on the shoulders of giants, to walk in your footsteps. Uh, Vic, this is the Tesla of worship services at Peachtree, and we invite you to drive, so go for it. Great, 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 great. Wow. Well, many of you were part of the uh, beginning of this contemporary service that was over in the lodge, and it was a fraction of the size we see today, so how terrific is this? It's just great. I want to thank Rich for inviting me to speak. And not only doing so, but the way he's invited me to do so, which is to, you know, usually the old retired pastor comes back to polish the past and go on the sentimental journey with some golden oldie sermon. But um, I've been invited to be part of the breaking news of this exciting fall series, Grace Habits. And, uh, you know, what that reminds me of is years ago when Rich and I were serving on the same staff in Houston. Um, I was the senior pastor, and I would go off in the summertime, and I would dream up the fall series. And then in the fall, when it was a Sunday that I wasn't preaching, I would go to the designated preacher, and I would say, well, now, this will be your text, and this will be your theme, and uh, here are some takeaways that you might want to bring to the congregation. Well, the shoe is on the other foot now, and I've received my assignment uh, this morning, my text is uh, Daniel, the first chapter. My theme is curiosity, which is great because I've never heard a sermon on curiosity, let alone preached one. And the takeaway is read a book. Read a book. Now, I am not going to keep you hanging in suspense. I'm going to tell you my four points right now. They are read a book, read the book, read both books, and read hard books. Now, I have to confess, when I heard of the theme, read a book, I felt a little jab right in here because um, in our family, the phrase read a book is fraught with complexity because we're a family that has dyslexia. And I've got a daughter who drives around Atlanta with a bumper sticker that says, honk if you love a dyslexic. And she hears honk, honk, honk all day long. And so there are probably some of you here in this room who know what it's like to sit next to this whip-smart young person who is a winner in every part of life, but trying to make sense out of the squiggles on that page is as hard as trying to jump to the moon. Now, there's a genius in dyslexic people, if you know any, and we wouldn't trade that for the world, but learning to read can be very difficult. And if you're one of those people for whom reading is difficult, and here you are about to hear a sermon called Read a Book, I want you to know that in our family, we're getting in touch with some really wonderful breakthroughs in helping people with reading issues. So I hope you'll get in touch with some of those so that you too can read a book, read the book, read both books, and even read hard books. So here we go. Point one. Read a book. Be like Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 and 17 through 21. 
We read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. Listen to this. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times, ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Would you pray with me? Lord, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Grant us the wisdom to understand. Grant us faith to see beyond our understanding. And above all, Lord, give us grace habits that we might carve a life that is worthy of your calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 606 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked Jerusalem and ransacked it. He carried off not only Jerusalem's gold, but he carried off what was their most prized treasure, and that was their best and brightest young people. And it was part of a wily strategy. He brought these young Hebrew men back to Babylon, and he dressed them in Babylonian clothes, taught them Babylonian language, and he enrolled them in good old Babylon U. And it was part of an early case of of ethnic cleansing, and he was trying to wipe out every vestige of their Jewishness, all with an eye toward eventually sending them back to Jerusalem to be his puppet rulers and to do his bidding. What's more, as you read the story at the very beginning, it looks like these young guys, uh, Hebrew men, opt in big time. They immerse themselves in everything Babylonian. And they're at Babylon U. Um, they're taking classes that today would have names like Introduction to Astrology, uh, Polytheism 101, Advanced Paganism. And, and they don't just read the books. They all but memorize those books. They show up early for class. They sit in the front row. They, uh, you could imagine them sitting at night with flashcards drilling each other on how to pronounce those unpronounceable uh, names of the Babylonian gods. And yet all of this they do, we're about to see, without buying into the Babylonian worldview. It just seems that they caught, caught up in the excitement and the adventure of discovery and learning, even to the point that here's what we read in verse 20. It says, 
In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the others in his kingdom. I mean, these guys out Babylon, the Babylonians. Here they get carted off in chains to this ancient center of fabled learning. And three years later, they walk across the stage as valedictorians. So how do you explain their passion for learning? Well, here's what we're told in verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of learning and literature. Seems to me the most obvious sense of that sentence is that to pick up a book and read is a way to glorify God. So read a book. You ever stop to think when you pick up a book and start reading, you may be in the presence of somebody who is a little bit smarter than you are. Hard to believe, I know. Back when I was an adolescent, I had a kind of strange compulsion. <laughs> what adolescent doesn't? But in my case, it was kind of a kind of strange thing. It was a, I had this cosmic urge to read books that were above my head. And, and um, what I called hard books. And I have a vivid memory of back when I was in junior high, I went through a period of time where I would throw my paper out and at the end of throwing my paper out, I have emptied my, my empty newspaper bags in the back of my bicycle. I pedal down to the local library and I would walk in and I'd go up and down the, 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 the hallway and in the stacks and I'd be looking for hard books. And I remember one time there was a title of one that, that just absolutely grabbed me because it felt so profound. It was called The House of Intellect by Jacques Barzun. Sounds so exotic. And I remember I thought, you know, what, what was I going to do with that? Hold it next to my head and hope something seeps in? But when I, I took it home, and it was when reading that book that I first came across a man named Frude. Frude. F-R-E-U-D. And, and Camus, uh, who later in college I understood was Camus. Um, maybe you've heard of a German uh, writer by the name of Goeth. Goethe, in other words. In other words, for me, those books might as well have been made, written in Chinese for all I understood. And yet I had this unquenchable yearning to learn and discover and to read. And I still have this image of myself uh, as a boy riding home from that library with these books hanging in my empty newspaper bags. Well, unfortunately, that turned out to be just a phase. <laughs> I went off to college and discovered fun. And when I was in college, the library, that was the place you go to cram for exams, a way to get out away from the chaos in the dorm. And in college, the thought that I would ever walk down the hallways of the library looking for hard books was about as likely as the NFL banning tackling. Um, in fact, studies show that curiosity peaks at the age of three years old. I mean, why do you think toddlers put bugs in their mouth? You know, why do you have to hide the paper clips? Because they're thinking, how will that feel inside my mouth? And yet with all the dangers involved, God still has made us curious beings in a world filled with mystery and wonder. You may have noticed that curiosity isn't always welcome in religious circles because because uh, curious people end up asking lots of uh, annoying questions. It is said that uh, our Presbyterian forefather, John Calvin, was once asked by a man, what was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? And John Calvin replied, he was creating hell for people who asked too many questions. 
But Jesus loved questions. Do you ever notice that when Jesus went out fishing for people, he would often bait the hook with a question? Uh, someone has counted, and Jesus in the Gospels asks 187 questions, gets asked 187 questions, of which he answers only three directly. Jesus himself asks 307 questions, usually not to, to, to get information, but rather he asks those questions in order to stir up feelings and emotions. To the woman who was, came that far from being stoned to death for her adultery, Jesus said, where did they all go? Does no one condemn you? Uh, to a paralyzed man who was hanging there dead in midair in front of Jesus, he said, what would you like for me to do for you? And, and someone has said that Jesus didn't have Q&A sessions, he had Q&Q sessions. Question after question after question. Because Jesus knew that curiosity can often be a path that leads into the presence of God. And you know what? I think that's the theme of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Tales. You all know the Narnia Tales of the four little children. They're at their uncle's house. Isn't it interesting that it is the incurably inquisitive little Lucy, the youngest child, who's the one who is puttering in the closet and discovers, first of all, the, the magical land of Narnia. And she's the first one to meet Aslan, the mighty lion, all because of her curiosity. And, and so let your curiosity read, lead you to reading a book because opening a book is one way to honor God in your life. Be like Daniel and his friends. And then there's number two. As did Daniel and his friends, read the book. It turns out those Babylonians got a lot more than they bargained for because far from being brainwashed at Babylon University, it turns out these young Hebrew hunks go there simply to get a lot of ammo so they can prove the superiority of their God over the Babylonian gods. And so what people see from the outside is these young men dressed in Babylonian garb, speaking the Babylonian language, and even answering the Babylonian names. And yet here's how we see, uh, I love the way that King James translates verse 8. This is, all this is on the outside, all these clothes and all the, 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 the things that they're doing from the outside. But then it says this in verse 8 in the King James translation. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Daniel says, you can change my home, you can change my language, you can even change my name, but you're not going to change my heart. And so here's Daniel who, who wins big in a corrupt society without tarnishing his own soul. How do you do that? Wouldn't you love to be able to do that? Here's what it says. It says, Daniel every day would retire to his room three times a day, morning, noon, and night, for time of prayer and meditation on God's word. Uh, while he was reading a book in class, he was reading the book before God. Because if you use the book to get information, the book brings you transformation. There are four words that appear again and again in the book of Daniel. God was with him. God was with him. Or God was with them. And that is an open book promise for each one of us from one end of the Bible to the other. It's called the withing promise. God says, I am with you 24-7. And so we wonder, well, why is it then that these young men were living life at an altitude that may be higher than I am with God? Well, could it be because 
Even though God was with them, they were with God daily, faithfully in the word as they were reading the book. These young men weren't just brainiacs. They weren't just after some razzle-dazzle brain that could win on Jeopardy. They went from mere smarts to true wisdom by spending time in the book. So how should we read the book? You know, it's interesting, the Bible tells us how it wants itself to be read. And there's one verb particularly, and that's one you've heard many times, it's the word meditate or ruminate. And it is literally in the Hebrew, the, the digestive process of a cow chewing its cud. In other words, you read slowly and meditatively. Uh, maybe you should think of it as reading the way that you would read uh, Good Night Moon at Bedtime to a child, letting every phrase sink in. A few years ago, there was a big rage with speed reading. Remember speed reading? Woody Allen once said, uh, I had, took a speed reading class and I read War and Peace in 20 minutes. It involves, involves Russia, I think. <laughs> anyway, sometimes we try to play a, a, you know, pay a compliment to a book. We'll say, oh, it's a real page turner. Well, the Bible's a real page stopper. Why would you want to rush something that's all about building a deeper relationship? I mean, you might as well take a class in speed loving or speed eating. When you read the Bible, we're downloading these words into our mind and we're saying, Lord, help me to think Christianly about everything I lay my eyes on in life. And why not let curiosity (laughs) work in terms of, of... of, of, of encouraging people to read the Bible. Um, I think that probably in your family, you may have people in your family, uh, children, that you want to get interested in the Bible. And I think a lot of us, I know I have, have uh, resorted to bribing young people with ice cream and money to read so many chapters of the Bible and that sort of thing. The problem is when you have an extrinsic reward It just assumes that the Bible is not intrinsically a thrilling book to read. You know, it's just like, it's like kale. It's just good for you, right? And so I I have a little whimsical idea. Suppose that you have a a girl in your family and and you love nothing more for her than to have her falling asleep at night uh, under the covers with a flashlight reading the Bible. Well, whimsically... I mean, take a page out of Jesus who tantalized people with curiosity. What if you walked into this young woman's bedroom and said, I'm sorry, honey, but this Bible is too old for you at your age. This is really an adult book. And there are parts of this book that if you were to read them, they're so scary that you probably wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. And there are parts of this book that are utterly inappropriate for a child your age. And so for now, at least, this Bible is off limits. And you put it on the top shelf and you walk out. Next morning, it'll be gone (laughs) and you'll never see it again. Anyway, that's a thought. Let curiosity work its magic in the Bible. Read a book, read the book, now read both books. And by that, I don't mean mean the Old Testament, New Testament, What I mean is, as Reformed Christians, we have in our Reformed theology, what what we believe is that there are two books in which God reveals himself and whereby we might know him, and they are the book of Scripture and the book of nature. To know God, you need Scripture, 
and you need nature. And the Mott, the writer, says there are only three prayers, help, thanks, and wow. (laughs) And nature is the wow. Because if you get information from the book and transformation from, uh, information from a book and transformation from the book, and then in that second book of nature, you get inspiration and wonder and awe that leads to worship. You know, we're told that when Daniel retired to his room for prayer, he would stand before an open window facing Jerusalem, but also simply looking out into God's world. God's not confined to the pages of the Bible. There's a whole creation out there, and an infinite God says, come and know me. I was reading recently, and I I love this, that um, before 1600, people wore glasses. And you see a lot of people wearing glasses before the year 1600. It was about 1608, somebody got the brilliant idea of taking those lenses and putting them in a tube and creating a telescope. And overnight, there was this revolution because up in the night sky, the planet Jupiter went from being an oblong blur to suddenly, overnight, it, it was clear and, and, and crisp and a shining planet. Did you know that Copernicus and Galileo believed that literally God gave the telescope to the human race so that we might know God better? And these early scientists, they used to actually write exclamations of praise in the margins of their scientific papers. I'm going to read you uh, something that was written in the margins by uh, Johannes Kepler, the discoverer of the laws of planetary motion. Imagine this on a scientific paper written on the side. It goes, great is God our Lord. Great is his power. There's no end to his wisdom. Praise him, you heavens. Glorify him, sun and moon. For out of him and through him and in him all things exist in all perceptions. Personally, I don't know why it is that God doesn't just some night rearrange the stars of the Milky Way to spell out, just in case you were wondering, yes, I do exist. But instead, he drops hints and he gives us this gift of curiosity. You know, one thing that helps in nature is to be surrounded by those creatures that are in their peak years of curiosity. This gives me an opportunity to say something I had to say, and that is, As of last week, my wife Becky and I have eight grandchildren. And, yeah. (laughs) Aged nine and younger. Just start at nine and count backwards. And uh, I often say, if God had told Abraham to sacrifice his grandson, he would have said, not a chance. But it was his son. You know, no, not seriously. One of the things we love to do is take our grandchildren out in nature and let their curiosity run wild. One of our favorite things is take them in the mountains here in Georgia and up in North Carolina. Not long ago, uh, we were with some grandkids up in in Asheville. And I remember my grandson said, Papa, I can run and there are no fences. And um, there are instead things like wild turkeys and deer and lizards and salamanders and snakes and and we actually came across a big old snapping turtle in a creek. But I'll, I'll never forget this one moment recently where I felt this little hand take my hand and say, Papa, come. And I followed down the path deep into the forest. We came to a creek. We walked along the creek. And we came to this kind of, kind of uh, canopied area where the branches were real low next to the creek. And they sat me down on a stone. And I heard, Papa, shh. 
This is our secret temple. And I suddenly realized that my little midget gurus of wonder were telling me I was sitting on holy ground. Let your curiosity lead you into nature and be sure and read both books. Read a book for information, read the book for transformation, read both books for inspiration, and you read hard books for confrontation. The bottom line is you cannot afford not to be able to defend your faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is within you. Let me ask you this. What would you say to an articulate atheist who said that evolution proves to anybody with half a brain that the Bible is false and the God of the Bible does not exist? To answer that, you have to have read hard books. You know, the kind that doesn't have pictures, it has footnotes, you know? Intellectually, you've got to get up on your tippy toes and you've got to stretch yourself to the very top of what you can reach. And you can't stay down here in middling mediocrity. Let me tell you, I've got some good news for you, though. Did you know that, arguably, but very good case to say the most important scientist in the United States today is an outspoken evangelical Christian. His name is Dr. Francis Collins. He is the former head of the Human Genome Project, and today he is in charge of the entire um, National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Collins has written a book called The Language of God, $15 on Amazon, and you can have it on Tuesday, okay? Language of God. And, And it's a hard book that is well within the grasp of any of you really here today. And in that book, he talks about his pilgrimage from atheism to faith. And he says the problem we have is not with so much with evolution. God could have chosen to evolve species from one to the other. He says this, how did it happen? Did it happen the way Darwin said? Or was this a process that was overseen by the loving hand of a caring God? And I love the way he ends his argument. He says, when I look at all the the evidence for the existence of God, he says, I have to say I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. In other words, when you examine all of the evidence and you're honest about the evidence out there in the world for the existence of God, it takes a lot more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. So says probably the greatest scientist in America today. The language of God is a book you should read. Now I want to tie all of this together about books with our theme of grace habits. Our habits are rituals. And our patterns are going to determine the outcome of our life and our character. Right now, um, I have a little crisis in my family because my wife is on a crusade to improve my posture. She wants me to stand up straighter. This is a very common project that wives have for their husbands, right? And, um, And I will do it for about a minute and a half and then I sort of, you know, forget. Um, As a result of that, I now have a high-tech device that's central to my life. And when I tell you the name of this device, you're going to say, well, of course, every pastor should have one of those. It is called upright. I now walk in uprightness before God and my wife, Becky. And what it is, is it's this little white device that you put at the nape of your neck, and it sits back here, and it will cut you enough slack that you can bend over and pick something up. 
But if you are slouched more than just a few seconds, it goes like this and it shakes on your back. And I have to say, I seriously hate it. But the amazing thing is it works. And the way it works is it takes your unconscious behavior, brings it to the surface, and so you can intervene in that, and it has the purpose for you to make the correction so that ultimately your subconscious behavior becomes good posture and your pattern and your habit. Because ultimately it's your unconscious habitual behavior that will determine the outcome of your life. There is a, uh, an old riddle that says, if there are nine frogs sitting on a log and seven decide to jump, how many frogs are sitting on the log? And the answer is nine, because deciding to jump isn't the same as jumping. Deciding to read hard books is not the same as reading hard books. Deciding to spend time in the Word every day is not spending time in the Word every day. I wish I could put a Nike swoosh on every Bible in this room. Just do it. Overcome apathy with action. God meets you at the point of your obedience. I'm now in my eighth decade and I have a new motto. It's never too late to be the person you might have been. So go for it. Dare to be a Daniel. Read a book. Read the book. Read both books. And read hard books. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to awaken curiosity in the hearts of every person here today. Give us an unquenchable desire to know you and to know the world that you have made and in knowing that world to know you better. And give us the habits and disciplines to become here on earth the persons that you dream us being from heaven. And all this we pray through Jesus. Amen.